months during the, the permit phase. And there are times I'm like trying to push this imaginary brake pedal through the floor trying to get a vehicle to stop. And, and he did great. And, and, but I've, I noticed Tanya does that when I drive, and I don't receive that as well as you might think. Um, but I, I, that feeling of lack of control, you guys relate to that at all? I mean, that, that sense that somebody else is taking you somewhere, you don't want to go at a, at a pace, you don't want to go there. And, and that sense of anything could happen in that moment. I, enough of you reacted right there. I'm glad, I'm glad I'm not the only one. And maybe we should start our therapy group now, you know. Those of us who have control issues, anybody, should we do a quick poll? How many of you feel to some degree or another you have control issues? Okay. <laughs> Welcome to North Terrace, a church with control issues. <laughs> Almost a universal experience. Wow. Well, then, then, then here's what I'm hopeful about. I, I really have been praying and hoping that what we're going to talk about this morning and the scripture we're going to go through will be, I hope it'll be encouraging to you. That if you have any issues either currently or historically with control in your life, that this will help encourage you down a road towards maybe some growth and healing. And I also hope it'll be very challenging, that maybe it'll help you make some changes and shifts that would be very beneficial to you, and if you have control issues, maybe beneficial to some people in your life uh, who are impacted by said control issues. You know, we got all these metaphors we use for control, right? I'm already the steering wheel, you know, wishing you had your own brake pedal. Who's got the keys of your life for our video gaming generation? Who's got the game controller of your life and who gets to push all the buttons and tell you where to go and what to do? We as a culture, I think this is true and, and I wonder if you agree. We, we tend to celebrate and elevate the idea of being independent and in control of your own life. Do you know what I'm talking about on this? Like, we really say you've got it together if you're the one making all the decisions in your life. And to the point where we really are starting to demonize a key word we're going to use all through the rest of the morning, the idea of surrender and submission. Like, we really don't make the people who surrender and submit, even in healthy ways, uh, someone that we look up to. In fact, sometimes we just don't even understand them. And I guess that tension between being in control and being a person who surrendered is something I've, I've been trying to manage and, and, and work through my whole life, especially when it comes to my relationship with God. And I want to I submit this thought to you really early on this morning, that if you have never surrendered to God, but consider yourself a follower of God, then I don't know that you really are following him. And I, and I think you may have actually been missing out on significant aspects of the idea of having a relationship with God. I think, based on what scripture says, that you can do a lot of spiritual things, and you can, you can be very active in a church, and you can even have some things that might appear godly. But if you have not willfully, actively surrendered to God, you'll feel like something's missing. And the fact is, it is. It's something significant is missing. The idea of a surrendered heart, the experience of a surrendered heart, is core and central to knowing God and experiencing an amazing life with him. But it goes against our nature. And it goes against our instinct, which says, to get what I want, I must be in control. And I hope this morning, as we look at Scripture, and I hope that as we, we again, wrestle with this, that you'll be convicted, because I am. And I'm hoping that maybe each of us can grow a little bit as we spend some time together. So here's how I'm going to sum up, if you would, the tension between what we're trying to do. And it, and it goes like this. This is the main thought for the day. We surrender to God 
to be lifted up by God. So in your notes, it goes like this. We surrender to God to be lifted up by God. And doesn't that seem to, maybe at first glance, be counterintuitive? Like, how can bowing down or, or taking a knee or, you know, making myself, you know, posture before God in an in a, in a appearance of surrender, how can that result in me being lifted up? Because clearly, I've made myself less and I've put him over me. But there is something that we get to experience with God that Jesus models for us, that when we surrender to God, instead of becoming less, we become so much more. Not because of what we've done outside of the willful conscious act of surrendering, but because of what God is then able to do with a surrendered heart. And man, we are a people who struggle to surrender. Let's talk about some postures of surrender. Like we have, well, maybe before we get into postures of surrender, postures of defiance that show we aren't surrendering. Anybody got the raised fist they do every now and then? Like, come on, you know what I'm talking about, right? I call this one my fist of fury. Like if you've earned this, you've earned it. I give you my fist of fury. Every now and then I give somebody what I call the finger of rebuke where I go, now some of you use another finger when you do the finger of rebuke. That's a whole other sermon. And we'll get to there uh, some other time. But, um, but you know what I mean. Some people, like my, my wife accuses me of this one. She goes, I know when you are not ready to listen or really have a healthy dialogue, when she says, I watch your jaw. And my jaw, will, it's almost like I cock it like a gun. I drop it and I set it forward. And then it's like, it's, I, I, and I joked earlier today, and it just happened again. How many wives in here just threw the elbow into their husband's ribs? Because um, some of us guys, we are really like, fine. I'm going to give you what you want, and you can tell by how my jaw is right now. And that means you know, I'm not giving you what you want. So I fully confess that and own it, that I do not have as good a poker face as I think because my biggest tell is just watching my jaw. So now I gave you all my kryptonite. That's not fair. Okay, so I know I have those issues. Some of us, I mean, even our body posture, like I'm kind of a bit of a fidgeter. I got a little bounce to me. Boy, but when I've got that control issue kicking into full gear, I'm not light and, and, and bouncy. It becomes almost stiff and rigid, and I'm ready to fight. You guys know what I'm talking about on all this? And I bet you have some ways you experience this and, and ways that it expresses in your life. Now, to counter that, there are some postures that stand out to us. For instance, there's the, the classic take a knee. You know, it's an act of submission. You become a little more vulnerable when you do that. Another one, we bow. We bow as an act of surrender. We submit ourselves. We, in the ancient world, to lower our head below the eyes and the head of another person was to show that you were submissive to them and they were superior over you. And uh, especially in courts of royalty and things like that, that was very important. How about this one? Hands up. Surrender. I, you know where I've really learned to appreciate this? I've had the chance, and I think I saw Mike Brown in here just a little bit ago. Mike invited me to do some training with the SWAT team here in Zanesville, and so I got to be a bad guy. And when you're the minister, you don't get to be the bad guy that often. So I even took a selfie with holding the gun and looking all bad, like I'm my perpetrator selfie, because nobody would believe it otherwise, right? But... Um, so I, so I took it, but it was all fun, and I acted all tough, and like I was the biggest, baddest brother. But you know what happened? When, they knocked, when the SWAT team took down the door and came in firing, the hands went up, and I surrendered. I wanted no part of getting lit up. So the hands thrown up and surrender, and we're going to talk about another one in a little bit where the hands come out and how important it is sometimes to just submit our hands this way and say, God, take from me what I'm holding on to and put into it what you want. So 
All that to get our heads and hearts ready for what I think is an amazing story of Jesus modeling the tension between engaging with God, asking for options, maybe even, he might say control, but Jesus isn't necessarily asking for control. He's asking for another way balanced with an attitude of surrender of the heart. So if you got your Bibles and your Bible apps, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to look at a section of Scripture, verses 36 through 46. And we aren't going to read all 10 verses. I'm just going to highlight a few of those. So while you're getting ready, let me give you the immediate context, what's been going on. See, this comes at the end of what we call the Passion Week. Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he entered on a donkey. We call it Palm Sunday, and everybody said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, you know, long live the king, basically, was the version of that. So Jesus kind of had that, that big high at the beginning of the week. So by the end of the week, what happens right before we're about to read is what we call the Last Supper. And there's some, some neat things that happen there, some important things, some things that stand out, like, At one point during the meal, Jesus looks to Peter, who he views as one of his right-hand men, and says, this is always fun to say to to 20-year boys, you know, tonight you're going to betray me. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter has that classic defense, right? Instead of being submissive, he's defiant. No, Lord, no, 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 I would never do that. For those of us who know the rest of the story, well done, Peter. Nailed it. At another point in the meal, he says, the one who dips his hand in in the bowl with me is the one who will betray me. Judas does that. And then we say, we know that Judas goes off. There's all this drama and intrigue going on leading up to what will be Jesus' arrest, the beatings he takes, the crucifixion, and his death. And Jesus is not naive. He's not blindly going into this going, well, I know something's about to happen. Uh, It might be bad. Jesus actively, consciously knows what lies ahead. And so after the Last Supper, we have him and his followers. They go outside of the city of Jerusalem to a garden called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane would have been a kind of a secluded area, kind of quiet, especially that time at night. And you kind of get the sense that as they all arrive, they got a little bit of the post-Thanksgiving lethargy going on. They've just had a really good meal. They're probably kind of tired. And so they probably start finding rocks and trees and sitting down. And Jesus is probably saying, no, guys, we're going to spend some time with the Lord here. We're going to pray. <laughs> it's probably like a youth group. You tell all the kids they're going to pray, and then you go wake them up in half an hour. Um, so, so, so they, all, they all find their spots. And then it says he takes a few of them, the, the, the closest to him, and they go off to a little side spot. And that's when we read in verse 38 these words, and, and they'll be on the screen here. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stop here. Does this leave any doubt to you about Jesus' state of, of mind and heart and where his soul is? This act of surrender that he's about to experience is in no way easy. I mean, he's choosing it. He's surrendering. But to dismiss it and say like it was a casual thing for Jesus, like any other day he just got up and walked, this was, this was different. He carried this heavy. I mean, who uses language like sorrow to the point of death unless you are so heavy of heart? Have you ever been in a season where these words might reflect the nature of your heart? I think a lot of us hit those at different times. Life is not easy. And and life with God is not promised to be sunshine and rainbows and easy path. There are times even following God and even doing what God asks us to do will still result in a season of the heart where we are overwhelmed 
with sorrow to the point of death. So it is natural at that moment when we are feeling the tension of what God is asking and what our instinct and nature desires, and they are in conflict, to have to try to resolve that. So what is Jesus' first act? Stay here and keep watch with me. So he asks his closest followers, be my strength when I don't have enough of my own. Be my friends who are with me. So, so keep this phrase in mind. Keep watch with me. That requires basically one act, right? Stay alert. Stay awake. By the way, I'm going to lead the witness a little bit. They fail miserably at that. Because Jesus goes off and he prays. And his prayer, it's beautiful. It's something that I think almost all of us can relate to either immediately right now have related to it in the past, or we may need to store this up for something that will happen in the future. Because in Matthew 26, 39, he goes off and he prays and he says these words. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Does that sound like a heart that's saying, Man, this is a great idea, God. Let's go with it. I love this plan. Let's roll. Do you see the tension? Do you see, I mean, notice what his posture was right away. Did you catch what he did? He didn't come in and go, hey, God, I'm looking up. This is all easy. I'm just going to look up at the sky. What was his posture? Did he take a knee? Did he bow? (laughs) That and more, right? If I were to go street on this, because I I have so much street cred, he, he falls down and he eats dirt. He falls face down. Anybody ever been at a point in their prayer life with God? I mean, a lot of times I sit and I pray. I'll I'll lay and I'll pray. I'll I'll stand and I'll pray. But I've had moments where I'm so overwhelmed, where all I can do is fall. And my crying out is not celebration crying out. My crying out is for mercy, relief, relief. Uncle, God, uncle, no more. Do you know what I'm talking about? Jesus does. And when you're in that moment, your Savior has been there. And you are not alone. He will carry that anguish, that anxiety, that, that, that doubt, those questions. He will carry all that with you in that moment. And he will work to resolve that through the power of the Spirit because he's showing us the way to do it. Because in his asking, God, I see the plan. I'm committed to the plan. But if we can have another plan, please, please. Do you catch it? You, the request is not, it's not passive. It's not shy. It's a son coming to a father saying, Dad, I get where we're going, and I'm all in. But is there another way? Because he sees what's coming. And he trusts the father, but he desires the option if it can be. But what's the key? And this is important for you and me too, when we ask God for plan B. When God seems to be committing us to plan A, and plan A seems like it's going to cost us a lot to our heart, our mind, our body, our soul, and we're going, God, it seems like a lot to pay. It seems like it may even be too much for me. The key when we ask for plan B is the last part of this. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. So, friends, you, as God's sons and daughters, are invited and asked by God and modeled by Jesus to dialogue with him, 
to ask. But the real key to that dialogue and that relationship is the statement, not what I want, God, what you want. Because then you can listen and submit and obey in a healthy way. So Jesus' model is a great thing for us, right? So we have this event happens. He goes and finds his disciples. He says, keep watch for me. He goes and he prays. And then you know what the Bible says? He went back from this first prayer episode and he went to find his guys. I don't know if he's got catching his breath and he's like, guys, just pray with me, pray for me. When he goes and finds his disciples, what are they doing? They're asleep, man. Thanks, guys. Big help. Woo! Fail. And sometimes the things of this world that we look to find strength in will let us down. And the disciples who Jesus sought strength in let him down. But he still knew where to go because it wasn't going to be his will, it was going to be God's. So he says, please just stay awake this time. Just stay awake. And then he goes and he prays again. So in verse 42, we pick it up again, and he does this. He went away a second time, and he prayed. My father, again, the relationship is key. I'm your son. If it is not possible for this cup to be taken, plan A, away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. God, if there can be a plan B, please. But if not, your will be done. Another way to say not my will, but yours. Your will be done. Jesus models this consistently. He goes back, finds his guys, who are still not alert and on watch. They've fallen asleep again. Verse 44 says that he comes a third time. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Isn't that interesting? Three times he went to the Father. I mean, it would have been, it's significant that he would have done it once, but three times in the ancient world, especially in a literary form, is a written version of an exclamation point. Bold face. Don't miss this. It's almost like God is saying, brothers and sisters, my sons and daughters, listen, I love you so much that you can ask me. I have a way that is best, but you are welcome to ask me for a plan B. And I believe with all my heart that there are times that God's great and mighty good can be done through version A, B, C. He is the God of all creation. He can get his will done and let's ask. Let's not be shy. He said he loves us. He said he can give us better gifts than anything in this world. So I'm going to ask. And then I'm going to commit, not my will, but yours be done. So that's what we've got to manage. That's the tension. So a couple thoughts in all that. Jesus made a conscious choice to surrender. This was not some passive act where he's like, eh, I guess I'm supposed to do this. He had to invest some emotion, some spirit, some physical. He was in it. Friends, we've got to make that choice. This isn't, you don't surrender by accident because then you haven't surrendered. Surrender is a choice because you are submitting actively. It is an investment. It is an entrustment. And we're going to get into that word a lot here. See, I think Jesus models that word in trust in a way that, that we need to understand. Because here's what I think we do. When we use the word surrender, we come up with this image like we just throw our hands up and we're haphazardly throwing the things that we care about, whether it be our, our mind, our life, all kinds of, it could be so many different things that we hold tight to that we feel like we're just throwing them to the wind and saying, I surrender. And we hope something good comes out of that. 
Can I paint a whole different picture of this for you that I think Jesus models here? I think Jesus shows us a posture like this. I think he takes the anxiety he has, the desire for a different plan. I think he takes all those things that are in his control and instead of holding tight to them or haphazardly casting them, he takes them and he entrusts them. He actively, intentionally places them in the hands of God. He makes a choice to say, God, these are yours. And you and I have to make that choice too because God, I believe, is actively waiting with open hands and he has one request. He says, trust me, give me you. And we come to this point of decision of where we gotta choose, are we gonna give him us? And, and we, we usually have a couple reasons why we then say no or wait or whatever. One of them is we know who we are and we know how sometimes jacked up we are and how much crud's in here and we're our own worst judges and we're like, so in our altruistic sense, we don't want to burden God with all that. So God, I'm going to protect you from all my stuff, but I'll just take care of my stuff and I'll give you my good parts. Do you realize how insane that is? When you think of it, do you understand what we just did? God is saying, I'll take you at your most broken. I desire you. I know who you are. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he's still saying, I want one thing. I want you. But God, I know better this time. I'll hold on to this. And you can have these little parts that are pretty of me. We've got to get over ourselves, even over our darkness, and say, God, if that's what you want, because he knows that we're broken. He knows we're messed up. He knows we're shattered, empty, hollow. I mean, what he's asking for, I mean, and, and here's the other thing we do outside of saying we, we know how broken and worthless we are. The other thing is we do is we hold on so tight saying, it's all I got. It may be worthless, but it's all I've got. And so in our holding on, we're, we are going to hold on to garbage, refuse, filth, because that makes sense too. I mean, all the reasons we use to hold on so tight to these things that we say have some sense of value, they're nothing. And here's God's invitation. Give me what you have. I know it's broken. I know it's messed up because I know who you are, but it's all I want. In fact, I want it so much that I gave you my son Jesus on a cross to show you how badly I want this. Will you give it to me? And only you can choose that. Your minister can't stand up here and choose it for you. Your parents can't choose it for you. You've got to choose. But there's this amazing transaction that happens. At some point, we come to ourselves. We become aware of where we are and what's going on. And we look in our hands and see our lives for all the brokenness and crud that they are. And we come to God and we say, you really want this? That's what you want? Then here it is. And we put it into his hands. And to him, in ways that we will never understand, is the most valuable, precious treasure in the universe because he made it and he loves it and it was worth the price of his son. And when that son died on the cross and rose from the dead, it made this possible. We hand him the broken and then we look in our empty hands and say, what do I got left? And you know what he does? He puts a new life back in here with a new heart and a new spirit and a new mind. And in this new version of me, 
that I surrendered once, I now get to surrender every day. Because if it was that good once, bring it on. All I've been good at doing is wrecking my life. Every time I take the wheel, I drive in the ditch. Every time I try to light a fire under myself, I burn myself down. But if I just trust God with me, he gives me back a better me. And what Jesus showed us was that by giving everything to God, when we surrender, we are lifted up and we find new life. Oh, this is good news. This is the, I can't tell you anything more important than that. But I want to encourage you with some more that can show you how this really works and why it's so important. So we've got to choose to surrender. We've got to make this choice. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to look at just a few verses here. I love this book of the Bible. It's one of my favorite. And in verses 6 through 11 of chapter 5, Peter lays out a way that we can humble ourselves and surrender and why it's so important. So I really want you to continue to follow along. You guys are doing a great job. And let's let's read what this says, starting with verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him, Be the power forever and ever. Amen. A couple thoughts pop out to me here. Those first couple verses, verses 6 and 7. Humble surrender is a choice. No one can make you do it. And I would say that with this caveat. It is a choice for a window of your life. From when you are born... Until the day you will stand before God in eternity, you get to choose whether or not you will kneel. But Revelation has a picture painted that at the end of time, when all humanity stands before God, you know what it says? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Optional from birth till that day, But on that day on, it is mandated by the authority and the glory and the power of heaven. So here's your opportunity. In this season of your life, you can choose. And it's a good choice. It's better than anything else the world offers. We entrust ourselves by choice to God, knowing that he will lead us to what is best. Here's another thought. comes from the middle of what we read there in 1 Peter chapter 5 we got to resist Satan and not God. I waste so much time and energy telling God no. But whenever Satan offers me an option, I jump in like it's the greatest choice in the world. Like, sweet! Talk about insanity all over again. How does that make any sense? You know how much effort I make to tell God, I know what you're saying, but this time you don't know what you're talking about. And every time Satan offers me an option, I'm like, that sounds like the greatest idea in the world. I don't even care what happens. That sounds like, does anybody relate to that at all? 
It's called sin. And Satan is a liar. I mean, he's the used car salesman of used car salesmen. And I love used car salesmen. Some of them have done me a really good job. But to the worst stereotype of some of them, sometimes we buy these lies. Has Satan ever kept his word? You gotta be kidding me. You'll be happy. It'll give you what you always wanted. All your relationships will be good. Tell me where you have followed Satan and not resisted him and it's resulted in something good. How long is that list? You need a post-it note, scrap of paper, little tear-off corner? Sarcasm implicit and intended. So listen, what would it be like if we took even half the energy of resisting God when we're fighting God and began to apply it to resisting Satan? How much better off would we be like that? You get what I'm talking about? It's time to fight the right enemy. Satan's like, I got everything you want. Surrender to me. Surrender to Satan leads to death. Death of your heart, your mind, your soul in this world and for eternity. Surrender to God leads to new life, not just in eternity, but new life here. I mean, we have the best promises in the future, but those promises aren't just for the future. They're for right now. You are God's people. You think he's up in heaven going, man, I hope they figure it out. The promises of scripture are he is actively living every moment with you. And when we surrender to him, he will lead us. He will guide us. He will provide for us. And he has never lied. The juxtaposition is so clear in its opposition. Satan lies about everything, has never told the truth. God has never lied. So what are we doing? Confession at the first of that line. I do the same thing. Let's fight the right enemy. Let's resist Satan. Because the Bible, what we just read, describes him as a roaring lion prowling about looking to someone to devour. Jesus is described as a lion too in the Bible. But he's not a lion who devours. He's a lion who protects and leads who shows the glory of the Father. I'd rather follow that one every day. How about this? God promises that the way we'll be lifted up is through growth, that he's going to help us become more than we are right now if we surrender to him. So let me give you four great words that show up near the end of 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11. The first one is this, restore that God will take what has been broken and shattered in your life. And some of you in here, I know some of the stories, and I hurt for you. I hate that some of you have had to go through some life things that should never happen to anybody. And you come to church sometimes, and you're just looking for hope. You're just, you're just holding on sometimes. Listen to me. I got to tell you this from God the Father himself. He's just waiting for you to give what you've been holding on to that hurts so much so he can do what he does. He specializes in resurrections. He specializes in restorations. So what is so broken you can't imagine healing? You're right. Based on what you know and what you can do, you'll never make it better. But I know somebody who can because he's done it with me. He's done it with so many people I know. And I want to invite you to surrender what you've been holding on that hurts so much to a God who can restore you who can make you whole. Trust him with it. Here's another word that he will confirm that those things that you have anxiety about, those things that you doubt, that he will tell you, you are his child, 
that he will remove doubt about whether or not he is with you or not. He said he would be. He is. You have nothing to fear. And that you now have a new name, child of God. And he will confirm that in your life and show you what he has in store for you. Oh, he rarely does it in one moment. Sometimes it's through a lifetime of chapters. But what lies ahead for you, his people, his children, is beyond your best imagining. Let him bring it to reality and confirm it as real. I like this next one. Strengthen. I have had moments where I'm at the end of me. I am just tired. I'm at the point where I have no more answers. And God has every time lifted up, recharged, restored, filled to overflowing. Scripture gives us a ton of promises about how God strengthens those who are weak. One of my favorite comes from the book of Isaiah. It says that those who trust in the Lord will rise up on wings like eagles. They will renew their strength. They will run and not grow weary. Oh, bring it on. What just happened? I got a little Pentecostal on you. Don't you? It's not up to how much strength you have. It's the strength of the God who's in you and through you. So quit trying to do everything on your own strength. You're going to fail. Trust in this God who says, I got this. I make walls of Jericho fall. I make blind men see, lame men walk. I make the dead rise. What are you worried about? So let's let our emptiness be filled to overflowing so we can be God's people, strong with the Father's strength. This one's maybe a little hard to get your head around at first, but I think it may actually be one of the most important. Establish. See, sometimes I think we feel like we're wanderers. Like in this world, we don't have a home. We're just trying to figure everything out. But the nation of Israel was a nation of wanderers. It was a people that was looking for a home. And God said, I will establish you. I will bring you to a place I have promised you. And there are promises that are yet to be fulfilled by God, but we know that are going to come true. Some of them will be established and made real in your time in this world. And there are some that will be made fulfilled in the life in the world to come. But friends, no matter what this world has promised you and how it will establish you in a house, a car, a job, a relationship, if you trust that God will establish you in all those things, he will make you rich in a whole different economy than this world offers and happy and fulfilled in ways that this world can never offer. But you must make a choice to surrender because you cannot experience that on your own. So that leads us to these questions. Have you surrendered? Have you surrendered your mind? Because you need to make that choice. The mind is the place where we begin to believe, where we hear this truth of who God is and how great his love is for us. And we can make the choice because God trusts us with it. He will not force us until that final day when it will not be optional anymore. Every knee will bow. So do you choose to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that he is your Lord and Savior. Some of you have. And some of us are still wrestling with, am I, am I going to surrender to a God who makes those promises? Do you surrender your identity? I love that I'm Chris Steele. I'm proud of my name and my family. But God gives me an identity that won't show up on any birth certificate or any driver's license and that identity is this. I am a son of the king. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And that identity is more important than anything else. Will you surrender your identity and make the number one way you are known as a child of God?
Third question, will, will you change? Will you repent? Will you begin to walk away from sin and towards God? Will you surrender what you do? Because there's things we've been doing for a long time that we're really comfortable doing that need to stop because they're going to kill us. They're going to harm others. But God invites us to a new life, a new way to live. And there are things that we will leave behind so that we can experience what lies ahead. Do you need to repent? Do you need to surrender your life to God? And maybe a first act of obedience and repentance is this last one. Will you surrender to God and trust him in in baptism? Will you do what Jesus did? He was baptized, and I want to be like him. Do you? The Bible tells us to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Do you trust that is true? Will Will you submit and surrender to God? So what is your posture of your heart and your life right now? Do you stand before God holding tight to all the control? How is that going? Or maybe right now, this very moment, for some of you, is the moment you take your hands off the wheel and you you give God the keys. And you say, it's all yours, because I've done a good job of messing it up. Make it new, please. Keep your promises. So we're going to sing a song. We call this an invitation, and it is. It's an invitation to come and surrender. I'll be up front. I already know that we're going to have a few baptisms this morning, so you all get ready to celebrate. Some people are surrendering, and it's never going to be the same. But if this is that day where it's time to surrender, we're ready to take whatever next step you are ready for. Let's sing.